Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor Tristan Free, and in this episode, supported by Molecular Devices, we'll explore synthetic biology, its history and the field that it can be applied to, from climate change to immunotherapies, before taking a look at the latest technological developments streamlining workflows in the field. Coming up, discover the unexpected role that fracking played in the direction of synthetic biology's development. Synthetic biology really developed with the biofuel space, using bugs to try and create fuels. And this was a really exciting and cool space until (laughs) fracking came along. And unfortunately, it didn't become economically feasible to use biology as opposed to being able to just pulling oil out of the earth. Explore the application of synthetic biology in a wide range of fields. Beyond that, the agriculture market has also been transformed by synthetic biology. So things like golden rice and modifications to plants that allow them to exist and thrive in areas, you know, in an ever-changing environment. So again, things that can help us combat the symptoms of climate change, and if not you know, stopping climate change itself. And we find out some of the interesting questions raised by the most innovative developments of synthetic biology. You can biopsy a chicken and then eat some chicken nuggets that were sitting next to your chicken that is still living there. (laughs) And I think that that is just like one of the most fascinating spaces right now. I think there are a lot of really interesting questions in that space, too, about feasibility and how we can make it scalable, because once it becomes scalable, then it can compete with sort of more traditional agricultural methods. Guiding me through the field are two experts in synthetic biology, Merit Savana, Technical Account Manager in the Biopharma Department of Molecular Devices, and Adam Claw, Technical Director of Synthetic Biology at Integrated DNA Technologies. Merit, Adam, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. It's nice to be here. Excellent. So firstly, Merit, in my mind, the synthetic biology field is mostly about manipulating organisms or biological processes to get them to produce a specific product for you. Could you expand on the term synthetic biology and what it encompasses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you hit the nail on the head of the core idea of synthetic biology, It's really about being able to make biology engineerable. And here at the Danaher family, Adam and I have been part of a team that is looking closer at the synthetic biology market because I think it's a very broadly applied term. And so we've tried to define it a little bit more specifically. So we defined it as synthetic biology is a set of concepts, approaches, and tools that enables the modification of existing biological organisms or design and construction of new biological entities for industrial, scientific, and healthcare purposes. And so, again, I think it really hits on exactly what you said. It's it's making biology engineerable and applying the sort of concepts that are used in engineering to biology. So things like the design-build-test cycle is a really good example of that. And What are some of the first examples of synthetic biology being utilized? How did this develop as a field? Yeah. So at its core, synthetic biology is really molecular biology. And so molecular biology has been around for a very, very long time. But I think 
that synthetic biology really developed quite a few years ago now with the biofuel space. So using bugs of varying type, yeast mostly, to try and create fuels. And this was a really exciting and cool space for quite a while until (laughs) fracking came along. And unfortunately, it didn't become feasible, economically feasible to use biology as opposed to being able to just pulling oil out of the earth. So those companies that were trying to do this actually ended up pivoting and moving more towards the industrial chemical space. So so using bugs to create large chemical processes that are more challenging via just chemistry. And so leveraging the biology to do that. It's difficult, isn't it really? Because it's almost without (laughs) fracking, you don't get all of the advances that we've had in those chemical processes and ultimately pharmaceuticals now. But also, if it hadn't come along, it's really exciting to think about where biofuels would have been right now and how that would have sort of changed the landscape of the climate crisis that we're currently experiencing. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword as to where you come down (laughs) on the pros and cons of fracking. Um, (laughs) But Adam, so now moving forward to what synthetic biology is being used for today, what are some of the key applications of Symbio? Sure, sure. So there is definitely still a push for biofuels and other industrial chemicals in synthetic biology. And I I do think at some point, this will probably come back to being something that is economically feasible, and of course, environmentally sustainable. But besides that, you know, the market and the companies have really expanded into many different areas now. So there are a large portion of synthetic biology companies that are in the healthcare space. Of course, the recent COVID pandemic has highlighted you know, some of the companies that are working on solutions to a lot of the problems that, that we're facing from a healthcare perspective. But beyond that, there's also a lot of different niches that companies have begun filling. When we think of, of just the food and drink industry, there are now meat substitutes and lab-grown meats that exist. So different ways of replacing meat or replacing the way meat is made in our diet. And a lot of those are driven by innovations in synthetic biology. There's other just general consumer products that are available as well. Things like synthetic silk and a variety of, of different materials, synthetic leathers and things like this. And then beyond that, the agriculture market has also been transformed by synthetic biology. So things like golden rice and modifications to plants that allow them to exist and thrive in areas, you know, in an ever-changing environment. So again, things that can help us combat the symptoms of climate change and if not, you know, stopping climate change itself. Okay. Well, it's interesting to hear that it has those implications for sort of replacing meat products and then also adapting crops to deal with the effects of climate change. So it's good to hear that it's coming back round to that that issue. Yeah. One can only hope that it can begin to properly address those causes, those root causes of the climate crisis. And so conducting these kind of processes and establishing them, what are some of the key methods that you're using in, in establishing synthetic biology systems? Well, as Merritt mentioned, a lot of synthetic biology draws from engineering background. And so this idea of a design-build-test cycle that's commonly used in many engineering applications is something that's applied to synthetic biology as well. And it's particularly important when you're working with biological systems. They're very complex. They're not always predictable. 
And so there's a lot of testing and retesting that needs to happen. If we think of you know, even simple systems that may only involve a couple of genes, there's still a lot of designing that, that needs to go into building these genes. In many cases, when you move a gene from one organism to another organism, and particularly if you move a gene from a eukaryotic organism to a prokaryotic organism, there's some challenges that come in there. Eukaryotes generally compartmentalize proteins and gene products in specific organelles, and there's a lot more internal membranes and things like that. When you move those production systems into a prokaryotic system that is essentially just a single cell, a single bag, everything is, is sort of in one place and you lose that ability to separate things. And that can cause toxicity that can change the way proteins fold. So there's, there's a lot of optimization that is required. And then beyond that, there's an optimization of just the levels of expression of, of each of the products. What we want to do in, in an ideal setting is minimize the amount of intermediate products that are made and maximize the final product that is made. And in doing so, that requires a lot of testing and a lot of iterations, changing things like promoters and terminators and different aspects that modulate the level of expression of each individual gene in a system. And what are some of the challenges that you really encounter when you're trying to sort of reduce those levels of the intermediate products and maximize your output of final product? You know, I think the real challenge there is simply the lack of predictability that exists. So there's there's some great computer modeling that exists and ways to narrow down the space that we need to search to find the appropriate system and, and the right answer. But it still really comes down to a lot of testing and a lot of cycling. And I think that's where, you know, Danaher and, and our specific companies have really tried to help the market here. One of the things IDT developed early on was our gene fragments product. And this is basically making linear double-stranded DNA that's highly pure, pure enough that you can order it as modular components. That we can make them long enough that they can be coding regions for genes or they can be promoters and terminators. So it allows you using a variety of different assembly methods like the Gibson assembly method and, and other modern assembly methods. It allows you to mix and match and assemble different promoters with different genes, different terminators with different coding regions. And in doing so, you can create this huge amount of variation and you can test that variation then using a lot of the high throughput machines like the colony pickers that molecular devices produces and acoustic pipetters that are made by Beckman and, and other companies. So there's many challenges there, but I think the field is also really progressing to meet those challenges. Excellent. And Merit, do you have any sort of common challenges that you encounter when you're working with these systems? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're using biological systems to cycle through, as Adam said, you need to cycle through a lot of them. And so we have some instrumentation that allows you to go from a single colony and then be able to pick all those single colonies. So the QPix microbial colony picker allows you to pick about 3000 colonies per hour. That is a lot more than your undergraduate that you've hired to do that work <laughs> can pick. And additionally, it has some other really nice features that, including the data aspect, right? I think that people forget that there is a lot of tracking that needs to be done. And so when you have automated systems, that tracking ends up being built in. 
So it's really nice to go from these modular pieces that IDT can provide, you know, using like an acoustic liquid handler, like the Echo to assemble those pieces. And then once you've got them in your bugs, being able to use the QPix to screen these large libraries of variants and find what you're looking for faster. And when you say picking, that is quite literally going through each colony with a pipette, picking it up and putting it into your wells for, for analysis. So, Correct. So that is <laughs> saving quite a lot of time. Okay. Absolutely. And so when you're working in these realms, and you're setting up these systems, creating these products, what are some of the limits or controls in place regarding what you can do with synthetic biology and how you need to do it? So if we talk about controls from sort of a regulatory standpoint, there is quite a large amount of regulation that surrounds what can be done and, and how it's done. And in the United States here, a lot of that is, is done at the level of funding. So NIH and NSF both have a long list of very strict requirements that are necessary to abide by to, to be able to receive funding. And so there's internal review boards that look over recombinant DNA experiments and approve them before they are done. There's limits on how things can be done and the level of biosafety that is required for these experiments to be done. And then at the level of the industry, it's a mixture of self-regulation in the industry and government regulation that comes in there. So the Department of Commerce and in the United States or the Department of Commerce and similar departments outside of the United States regulate things that can come in and leave the country. And within the country, it also regulates the ability to do certain experiments, to produce certain recombinant types of organisms. And then, as I mentioned, there is industry self-regulation as well. And IDT and many other companies are involved in the International Gene Synthesis Consortium, which is encompasses about 80% of the DNA manufacturers in the world. And we in the IGSC have came up with what's called Harmonized Screening Protocol. That is a protocol that all of the member companies use to screen all of the sequences that are requested by customers and ensure that, that we're compliant with regulations and that we're doing them in a safe way. So, you know, it tries to limit the amount of biohazards and biohazardous experiments that happen while still allowing, you know, the great research that is happening and the new products and the new pharmaceuticals that are coming out. So, so striking that balance between keeping it safe, but also allowing sort of innovative and open-minded research and, and studies to go on and drive it forward. Yes, yes. So if there was one thing, Adam, that you could change to improve synthetic biology, and if you could literally pluck that out of the air and it snap your fingers and it's changed tomorrow, what would it be? One of the hardest things in synthetic biology is that it is just, as I keep mentioning, a very complex system. And the system, you know, is, isn't complex just because of the biology. There's also, you know, a huge array of machines and mechanical systems that are needed in this design build test cycle. And as we've mentioned, there's some great tools that are out there, but the hardest thing and the thing that we struggle with at IDT and many other people struggle with as well is creating a software system that integrates in a workflow. And, you know, 
it's a challenge in creating a software system that is flexible and agile enough that you can adjust that workflow to whatever the biological need is in the system, but robust enough and repeatable enough that you can run thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of things through it and iterate quickly. And these systems need to be able to incorporate not just the ability to synthesize, create the DNA, build the DNA and assemble it, but also to deal with the failures that come up because failures are an inevitable part of our process here. So having a workflow is not not sufficient. You need a workflow with rework cycles built into it as well and ways to recover from failures in there. And that is just a very hard thing to do. And it's, it's a very variable thing to do. If I had my wish from a genie, I guess, if we want to think about it that way, it would really be to have some type of system that could easily integrate many different machines and many different outputs into this cycle so that we could automate this more. There's still a huge amount of this that is done on Excel sheets and manual tracking. And that's one of the limitations that we have right now. And Merit, with the technologies that do currently exist, What do you think is one of the most exciting applications of synthetic biology at the moment? What really sort of raises your eyebrows when you first find out about it? Yeah, I am super fascinated by the food category. I just think it's a really, really amazing space that is moving at a pace that is really incredible. You know, there are several different aspects of that food space, right? You have the plant-based meats and the sort of fermented meats, right? So the folks who are using microbes to create proteins. And then you have these lab-grown meats where, you know, you can biopsy a chicken and then, you know, however much longer later, eat some chicken nuggets that were sitting next to your chicken that is still living there, (laughs) And I think that that is just like one of the most fascinating spaces right now. I think there are a lot of really interesting questions in that space too about feasibility and how we can make it scalable. Because once it becomes scalable, then it can compete with sort of more traditional agricultural methods. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about whether people are going to be comfortable with it, right? You know, I've asked some of my friends, do they want to eat a, you know, steak that was grown in a laboratory? So I think that space to me is just such a cool and interesting space to watch. Well, I guess we've just got to hope that whatever the animal farming version of fracking doesn't come along. There's not a, maybe the, <laughs> exactly. the, the G, GM livestock that are suddenly for five times the size and grow in two seconds is not the thing that then replaces it. So we can keep the economic viability of lab grown meats. Absolutely. And hopefully we can also just convince people to get around to it. I guess the key thing is just making it taste real good. Yeah. <laughs> and Adam, how about you? What would you find most exciting either about working with synthetic biology or one of the applications that you look at now that sort of really inspire you? Yeah, it's it's hard to narrow it down because there's so many just fascinating researchers that we work with and that, that I have the privilege to interact with at IDT. I think, you know, food production, it's one of the things that makes me most hopeful in a changing world like ours. The ability to, you know, to create genetically modified organisms that can be more efficient and can use less land. You know, I think 
that's one of the biggest problems that we have. It's just our land usage and, and anything that increases that efficiency and allows us to shrink our footprint is you know, hugely valuable to us as an environment and as a world. But I also think the field of immunotherapy is just fascinating. And the ability to create, you know, precision medicine and personalized medicine and to do it extremely rapidly and to be able to harness the power of our own immune system to fight cancers and to fight diseases is fascinating and just gives me so much hope for treating our loved ones and treating ourselves in the future here. I think that's what gives me the most hope and what is most exciting for me in synthetic biology. Yeah, I, th- I think I have to say I- I'm very on board with the lab-grown meats because I keep reading articles telling me that the future of protein consumption is insects and they're the thing that are going to the most efficient to feed and take the least land space, which I'm not super stoked about. I'd much rather be eating <laughs> lots of meat and having a good time there. So I've got my fingers crossed for lab-grown meats. So Merrick, where do you see this field in five years' time? Yeah, well, I think Adam touched on it, right? It's the therapeutic space. I think that that, I think we've seen it with COVID. I think that, you know, the rapid vaccine development, like really being able to embrace some of this technology that exists, but the regulatory spaces are now embracing it as well. And so I think that that there's going to be a lot of expansion in the human health side, researchers embracing, embracing that design build test cycle, you know, applying that more and more to the mammalian systems. I think that that's kind of a new area that it's being done, but I think it's it's growing. And then additionally, just improving human health. So that sustainability aspect, I think that sustainability across whatever you could possibly imagine, right, is really going to be where synthetic biology is going to target and hopefully create the best outcomes. You know, there's a lot of things that we don't even think about the impact on the earth. And so synthetic biology is, and synthetic biology is able and is really starting to address, you know, things like even going back to some of the industrial chemicals, right? Are they going to be able to start doing more with the electronics that we have and that we all use, right? Being able to create the pieces for that in a more sustainable way that's not mining it out of the earth. And so improving human health across the board, right? And creating a more sustainable planet. I think that that's that's where it's headed. and, And there's just so much opportunity to address these problems. And I think people are really excited about addressing them as well. It's a really interesting point. I hadn't considered it in terms of the literal sort of like materials production aspect of it. And that's the level of complexity you can get out of these systems to create the materials that you'd need. So what kind of in the electronics aspect, but what kind of aspects would you be trying to replace there? So currently I know what some of the areas that are being addressed are a lot of the polymers. So right, the the screen of your phone. And a lot of that is based on plastics right? So being able to move away from oil-based plastics and use synthetic tools to do that, biological tools. Okay, fantastic. And Adam, how about you? Is there anything that you sort of would like to see in the future or that you're, you're predicting will reach in the next five years? I think one of the most interesting aspects of synthetic biology for now is the change that is occurring in the regulatory landscape, particularly this goes back to pharmaceuticals and drugs and things like this. And as we have seen with the COVID pandemic, 
mRNA-based therapies are a burgeoning field that is, you know, really at the cusp of, I think, making great advancements. But one of the things that we need to change is the way we think about regulating these things. And it's, it's a switch, I believe, that needs to happen from the traditional method of regulating a specific chemical to regulating a process to make things. And this, this then allows for personalized therapies and individualized precision therapies you know, that can be made that may not use a specific drug, but will use a class of drug or a process that targets you know, exactly what your ailment in your specific body is. And along those lines, I think there's a societal change that we need to see happen as well, and that I hope we will see, which is a greater acceptance of genetically modifying organisms and using them. There's a lot of resistance right now to GMOs. I believe that's slowly changing. And, you know, as we see things like, you know, COVID vaccines and personalized therapies that, you know, that save people, I think that that will make that an easier transition. But I think those are things that still need to happen. And I'm I'm hopeful they will happen in the next few years. Yeah, it is interesting to see that changing thought process and sort of public opinion towards GMO livestock and crops and things in general. I think it's something that's changing in the UK here a little bit. And that I think is is one of the few benefits of Brexit is that we have now different regulations regarding GMO for the EU, which is a little bit more restrictive. And I think we're coming slightly closer to America's sort of principles on it. So hopefully our researchers here will be able to do a little bit more more work in terms of field tests and things like that, which have recently approved. So hopefully as that starts, we'll get a bit more of our population seeing the positive sides of GMO and understanding it a little bit better. Merit, Adam, it's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It was great. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to find more like it, you can check out the podcast section of our website over on www.biotechniques.com or follow at Tristan on Twitter for regular updates and threads on our latest episodes. Thanks for listening and goodbye.